This episode of Future You is brought to you by Nelnet Campus Commerce, delivering payment technology for a smarter campus, and by Entangled Solutions. This is Future You with Jeff Salingo and Michael Horn. Welcome to Future You. I'm Michael Horn, joined by my co-host, Jeff Salingo, and we're delighted to have on set today uh, Mary Marcy, the president of Dominican University of California. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thank you both for inviting me. This is looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, we are as well. And a question we love to uh, kick off our episodes with is, how did you get to where you are today as the president of Dominican? <laughs> that's, a que- that's, a, that's a challenging question for a president, because you could settle in and talk for a while. You but can I go won't. wherever you I want. Yeah. Uh, I will say that uh, you know I, I've spent my career in higher education. I didn't know that would happen. I started out uh, on a cattle ranch in Nebraska, and higher education really became the path for opportunity and personal change for me that I think we hope it will be for so many of our students. And so the the opportunity to lead a university really feels like a, a mission for me, uh, as well as just a, a great job. So you know how to herd cattle then, which I guess we, we won't talk about faculty and students <laughs> and herding, herding all the people You don't want to put her campus, into uh, but... difficulties when she goes back. <laughs> I will but... tell you that my cousin got me a, a lariat for my inauguration because he thought it would, he, he, he's a faculty member at another college. And he thought it might be useful. So, <laughs> so um, Mary, you recently came out with a book called The Small College Imperative. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the book and, and what inspired you to write it? Sure. Uh, You know, there's so much noise, information, but really noise too right now in the space around small colleges. Are they going to survive? Who's going to be the next Hampshire? Who's going to be the next Sweetbriar? And, you know, this kind of high drama, some of it legitimate. But because of all that noise, it's hard to sort out what's reality for a lot of these institutions. And for me, at least, I didn't really want another conversation about everything that's wrong. There are a lot of challenges. So I do talk about the challenges up front. But the bigger question is, how do you respond to them? And are there are there hopeful paths forward? And what are they? And although some of the conversation, I think, because of the Sweetbriar Hampshire Mount Ida narrative, has become more prominent in recent years, the issues of demographics, the issues of market, uh, the change in educational technology, the business model, those actually aren't new things. And so there's a number of institutions over the last few years that have really started to adapt. So the question in the book is, can we learn from them? And, you know, what's working? And, you know, what is replicable? What's maybe idiosyncratic to particular places? So let's get to that in a moment. The question I want to back up for just uh, one moment before we dive in is, how do you define small colleges and what 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 fits in the group and what is out? I don't have a, a, a you know a scientific uh, sure. a- explanation, but I I would say that any institution that's small enough that it is not focused on we can be all things to all people. We don't have to have uh, you know multiple levels of law school, business school, engineering school, etc. Now some small colleges have a few of those things, but. They're not research one institutions. They're probably certainly less than 10,000 students, um, maybe less than that. I will say in the book, I actually feature an institution that's much larger than that, but they started out as a small college. So we can talk about that. Right. Well, so Southern New Hampshire University, I think, is one of them, if I remember from the paper that you uh, released uh, before the book itself. Can you, uh, for the audience, give give an overview of the five uh, big solutions, if you will, that you talk to for uh, small colleges? You, when you, you asked a minute ago about how I started, I actually started with my own board saying, where do we fit? You know, what's, what's, what questions um, 
are we trying to answer and where do we fit in a larger scheme of things? And of course, some of that's who's the competition. So the five models really came from that conversation. It was saying, this is what I see in the landscape. So the models range from traditional, uh, which is, you know, the kind of core traditional liberal arts, residential, and what everyone thinks of as small colleges, but it's actually a relatively small number. Uh, The second category is integrated, which maintains the core liberal arts, but tends to add professional, pre-professional, some graduate programs, but really focuses on integrating them in thoughtful ways. The third model is a distinctive program model, and that's a little bit less concerned with what's the core academic program and more concerned with what's what's the student experience, not outside of the classroom necessarily, but how do we make sure students are successful and engaged, mm-hmm. and how do we distinguish ourselves in that space? The fourth model is the expansion model, uh, which is a little bit more agnostic, frankly, about liberal arts and much more focused on where's the market and where do we add program uh, to respond to that market. It may be on campus or off campus. And then the final model is a distributed model, and that's very much more focused on the online, just-in-time, react to um, current needs. And and that one, it uh, it, it's sort of growth focused as well. Is that part of it or not necessarily? It, it certainly is when it starts. I think it's still growth focused. Yes. I and mean, it's very much uh, reacting to the broader landscape in the market and saying, where do we need to be to fit the current needs for people? And it also tends to move away from the traditional student age. Now, traditional students, certainly age students certainly take some courses through those programs. But a lot of times it's retooling for adults. It may be um, partnering specifically with businesses and organizations that want their workers trained in specific ways. Um, Mary, when I was editor of the Chronicle right after the Great Recession, we were thinking about a story kind of taking the line from Shakespeare, you know, the first thing we do is kill all the lawyers. Um, You know, the first thing we do is kill the small colleges, right, is, uh, you know, thinking about what higher education looks like after uh, after the Great Recession. You know, they've been much more resilient than I think people probably gave them credit for. But it begs the question, right, why, why are small colleges important? And even if they're important, why do we need so many of them? Yeah, I think it's it's a profound question, actually, for American higher education right now, because I, I do think that the Great Recession is a great jumping off point, Jeff. Many of these institutions have not recovered from the Great Recession. If you look at net tuition revenue, it's basically flatlined uh, since before the recession. So they have been very resilient, but it's also wearing on a lot of these institutions. Why do they matter? Uh, yeah, I, I think that the great strength of American higher education has actually been the diversity of offerings. It doesn't always align as much as we might like with, you know, exactly where the students are. The students may not understand the choice. They'll have more help now, thanks to your book, Michael. But I think that that diversity is actually important to the the larger ecosystem of American higher education. Uh, Right now, the challenge to liberal education is real. Uh, It's not, you know, as clearly aligned with the market as people would like it to be, they think. It actually, you know, the, the data suggests otherwise, but it's not as obvious. And so I think that notion of engaged learning, of communication, of critical thinking, but also, you know, an educated citizenry that can participate in our democracy is pretty core to, um, you know, the notion of American higher education. So you mentioned kind of net t- tuition revenue following the Great Recession for uh, for colleges, for small colleges and universities. What are some of the other 
big issues you think facing um, institutions? Because when I think about everything facing higher education today, it seems like much more pronounced even at small colleges, right? They they tend to be in more rural areas, for example, when, when students want to go to more urban uh, areas. They're concentrated in the Midwest and the Northeast, where we have a demographic downturn in terms of high school graduates, right? They don't have big endowments. Uh, they're tuition dependent, right? And on and on and on and on. So as you think about the core issues facing them, not not that if they can just fix those two or three issues, they're going to be fine. But what are the when you when it comes down to it, what are the real core issues for small colleges? I think one is not just reacting to the present, but actually anticipating a bit of the future. And I, I don't mean that actually primarily being market driven, but looking at who are our students and who are they likely to be. So one of the things I talk about in the book is how a few institutions have responded in really thoughtful ways to what they see coming uh, with the demographic changes. So you know, my own institution has become much more diverse in the last uh, decade. At the same time, our student success rate has gone up. We have a huge improvement in graduation rates. That's because we saw that change coming and we really were trying to respond to it. Uh, Cal Lutheran is another one that's featured in the book where you know, Lutheran College, you think uh, you have an idea of what that's like, right? Uh, Cal Lutheran intentionally over a period of years reached to become a Hispanic serving institution because they saw student demographics changing in that way. And they focused on the serving part. They, you know, they were really not just saying we're going to add more numbers, but how do we need to change in terms of our programs in our core to meet the needs of those new students? So I, I would say anticipating those shifts is as crucial as anything else they can do. So let's talk about what you've done at Dominican University then specifically. First, how you fit into those five models that you laid out, but then also you've launched uh, some really innovative partnerships with Make School, uh, for example, uh, and, and made some moves that have caught a lot of eyes around the country, frankly. Talk about how that fits into this concept of anticipating the future. Sure. Um, so we did say our students were already diverse a decade ago, but there were about 48%, I think, students of color at that time. Now we're almost two-thirds students of color. Um, about a third of our students are the first in their families to go to college. You know, usually 25 to 30 percent are Pell eligible. And at the same time, our, our graduation rates have increased dramatically. And the reason is because we're in the distinctive program model. We focus on something called the Dominican experience. We've taken those high-impact practices. There's lots of research that says this is what matters. Uh, and we said we're going to do it, but we can't do all of them. What are the things we think we could be good at? Uh, so every student has an integrative coach. Every student has some form of community-engaged learning. Every student has a signature experience. Every student has a digital portfolio that helps with their integrative coach as undergraduates. But then as they move towards graduation, it can work for graduate school. It can work for, um, for applying for a job. Now, that's a, that, that's a core experience, but at the same time, we've added new partnerships. We've added new programs. Uh, the Make School Partnership was very specific. It's uh, you know, We knew, particularly in the San Francisco Bay Area, we needed to be offering something in terms of dig digital literacy and core computer science. The idea of starting that from scratch for an institution like ours in the shadow of Stanford and Berkeley, can you imagine <laughs> you know, how many Daunting millions of dollars <laughs> sure, sure, yeah. uh, and how, just how much credibility we'd have? Uh, but you know, we knew what we were good at, and we're incredibly good at a core student experience. And so we found a partner in Make School who was equally committed to student opportunity and the student experience who had great background in computer science and coding and had some ideas for how they wanted to change that space. So we've partnered, so they deliver CS, we deliver the kind of core general education liberal arts. 
their students are still in San Francisco. We go there with our faculty. They're getting a CS degree now from Dominican. Uh, and Dominican students are getting uh, up to a minor in CS that they're delivering on our campus. Now, this is made possible because we've got a great and uh, thoughtful accreditor uh, in WASC. I think they're, you know, this is one of those cases where accreditation actually helped. Has helped and aided. Helped, yeah. yeah, helped innovation. Uh, but I would say in general, those kinds of partnerships are, I, I think, a space that we need to move into. I have a chapter in the book on new types of partnerships and consortia. It's a, it's a really uh, fertile space, but it's not fully fleshed out yet. We were also starting a partnership with uh, the state. We had a partnership with a city up the road where students would get paid by the city for public service and we would provide a scholarship. The governor is now interested in that. We're expanding it statewide so that students will do some civic engagement with the state as a part of their academic core. So it's going to be built into four years and they'll get a scholarship from us. It will help them pay for college. The students that we have in the current program are going debt-free at this point. Uh, so we think that kind of model could also work. Mary, one final question. Um, let's go back to WASC for a second, because I think when, when we talk to presidents and other senior leaders in higher education who really want to be innovative, the thing we hear over and over again, well, if it just weren't for the accreditors or the federal government or the state government or, or you name it, we could do it. Talk, so WASC is obviously one of the more progressive accreditors out there, but it's still required work. Can you yes. tell if there's a, a listeners out there who want to do things at their own universities, what advice do you have for them in terms of working with their accreditors, whether they're in, in the West or not? I would say it's a little bit like the, the questions I, I suggest we ask of ourselves as small institutions. We can't do everything. What is it we do well? Why do accrediting bodies exist and what is it you need from them? So in this case, it wasn't we need accreditation. It, for, for us, they helped ensure the legitimacy of the partnership. You know, we were partnering with a for-profit that uses an income share agreement. <laughs> and is seeking its own accreditation, And is seeking right? its own accreditation. Yeah. We, you know, we wanted the, the external review to push us to make sure that the boundaries were there so that we didn't uh, get off the rails in developing the partnership. So we really worked closely with them because we needed their, we felt we needed their expertise. And I, I would say that's the question is not, what do you want from them? What is it they can provide that you need? So in other words, don't see them as a threat or a, a something that that's in the way as a barrier, rather see them as a partner. Yes. Is that part of it? Absolutely. Because okay. I, I think most accreditors, they, they want you to be successful. They do. Uh, but their responsibility is to make sure that you, you do so in a way that's legitimate, whether it's financial or, or academic. Well, this has been great. Uh, Mary, Mary, thanks so much for, for joining us. Mary Marcy, president of, of Dominican University of, of California and, and author of the new book called The Small College Imperative. It was great to have you here. Thank you very much. It's great to talk to you guys. And we'll be right back on Future You. This episode of Future You is brought to you by Nelnet Campus Commerce. Nelnet Campus Commerce delivers payment technology for a smarter campus. The secure payment solutions for higher education are PCI Level 1 validated and integrate with every major ERP. From payment processing and refunds to payment plans and online storefronts, Nelnet Campus Commerce helps process payments on campus. Learn more at campuscommerce.com. This episode was also made possible with support from Entangled Solutions. If you want to shape the future of education, Entangled Solutions would like to hear from you. Entangled Solutions is hiring smart, mission-driven team members interested in helping world-class institutions solve their most vexing challenges in learning and education. Learn more at entangled.solutions. 
back with Future You. I'm Jeff Salingo along with Michael Horn and coming off a great conversation with Mary Marcy of Dominican University of California, uh, one of the great small colleges in, in the state that's dominated by public uh, higher education, the UC system, the CSU system, and and uh, the California Community Colleges. Uh, Michael, you've written a lot about small colleges. You've been associated, of course, with these predictions about the future of colleges in general, but I think a lot of people just insert small college there when you talk about uh, colleges potentially closing. Why, why are small colleges, I mean, it's... It, they make up about 40% of the market, right? So colleges under a thousand students, you know, those are what I call probably tiny colleges make up 40% of the market and, you know, a couple more thousand, another 20% of the market. So this is a big part of American higher education. Is that the only reason they're important is because they make up such a large proportion or are there other reasons? Well, and what I'll supplement right to that statistic is they make up a large percentage of the institutions, but not a large percentage of the students, right? Most of the students go to public universities uh, or to community colleges, and that makes up the bulk of the students. And so I think a question we often hear, and it's why I'm glad we asked Mary uh, how she sees the importance of small colleges. One of them, I think, is right. It's a diversity of options so that not everyone is going into a similar track. It creates other uh, pathways that are possible. But the other piece of this, I think, from my perspective, as I look at it, is that the outcomes uh, for different demographics of students are actually often superior in private schools uh, compared, or excuse me, small schools, I should say, compared to their large public uh, counterparts in many cases. And I think that's bred from the familiarity, often a faculty that is more focused on teaching and learning and supporting than research in in, in, uh, many cases. And so that some of these impacts in terms of uh, how students do in terms of graduation are actually better. Now, job outcomes is the other piece of this that I think is tricky because of the uh, rural-urban divide aspect that you talked about in, in, in your book and you asked Mary about. And I think that's complicated the narrative a little bit in the last several years. Uh, but I think it gets into this creativity, frankly, around partnerships also. Right. Do you think, though, that uh, larger institutions, right? So if most flagship universities, do you think there are something that those universities can learn from small colleges? In other words, are there yeah, ways yeah. of scaling what small colleges do, or is it just because they're able to do it because they're small? This is the question I think I personally struggle with, just to be honest, which is I think public universities could do a better job of creating small learning com- uh, communities within the university that maybe are microcosms of the larger campus or are particular divisions of the campus if you want to be focused on a, in a particular way and things like that to create some of the fabric. One of the challenges, though, is that uh, because of the pecking order in higher education, Uh, Regional public universities often want to look like uh, flagships, and flagships are often trying to compete from a research perspective with the Ivy League and so forth. And so that emphasis on research and promotion around tenure uh, tied to publishing, I think, is uh, often challenging, frankly, uh, uh, for for these institutions to replicate, um, uh, you know, sort of the best of the liberal arts. The third point that small colleges bring to the table that I'm not sure the large publics can replicate is uh, the interconnectedness with the broader economy outside of urban areas in many cases. And it's not necessarily a reason to support a college on its own merits, if you will, but these small schools are often very tied into the fabric of their communities. And if they disappear, it's literally the collapse of the largest employer in that region, uh, or certainly that town in many cases. And that has very significant impacts, uh, not just obviously on the town's employment situation, but also economic development more broadly and the chances of those regions staging a comeback effectively. And so 
I, I don't personally think that's a reason just to keep the institution alive on its own merits, but I do think small colleges play a larger role than is popularly understood for those reasons. I, I guess from my perspective, then it gets to the solution set, which is where I thought Mary was so interesting in terms of not just the categories that she's uh, come up with in the book and the white paper that she wrote that preceded it, uh, but the partnerships that she's been thinking about. And, and your question about the accreditor uh, being seen as a partner I found I, I found her answer pretty insightful. I'm curious your take on it. Yeah, I mean, she obviously spent a lot of time with the accreditor. You know, one of the things she didn't mention is Wask is now head by Jamie Studley. Yes, you know, formerly of the of the department, formerly a college president her herself. And so I think that they had first of all, Wask is a little bit more progressive than some of the other uh, and has been seen as such for many seen years. As such. Yeah. And and having somebody like Jamie who has a position on innovation, but also has a process on innovation, I think really um, helped there. But I think part of this is just the legwork that I think that most college presidents, to be honest with you, don't want to do, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's much easier to just say, well, the accreditor won't let us do this. The federal government won't let us do this. The state government won't let us do this. And just hide behind it. And just hide behind it because it does take a tremendous amount of of legwork. You know, we're one of these days we're going to have Paul LeBlanc on the on the show and he will talk a lot about the work that Southern New Hampshire has done and, and the work that they had to do not only with the federal government, but also with their accreditor as well. And it just requires the time that I think most college presidents would rather spend on campus or spend fundraising or doing the other things that they're doing. And sometimes they don't really have a good understanding of the process. And I thought it was really interesting what she said, using the accreditor as a partner to help you rather than see them as a barrier. Yeah, I thought to me that was the big distinguishing feature as well, which is I think sometimes an accreditor is seen as uh, the mother you need to get permission from, <laughs> as opposed to the partner that actually brings a set of answers to the table that you might not have on your campus or that you're going to have to rely on legal counsel or somewhere else to get the answers to. Uh, I was so impressed with how she brought them in as a partner because when Alana Dunnigan and I wrote a chapter uh, in, in a book about accreditation as a barrier to innovation, and Paul obviously stands out for his work with NEASC, but it felt a little bit like the haves and the have-nots. What, what this conversation changed my mind on, I think, was viewing it not as sort of, are you politically connected to the accreditor or not, but more, okay, let's come to them early and say, these are the questions that we have as we're contemplating this partnership. This is why we think it'd be really advantageous. How do we structure it so that we're getting the advantages out of it, and we're not running a field of anything. And, and having presidential leadership on here, I think, is is critically important. I spoke a couple of months ago to Sachs, you know, the Southern accreditors, and and you know, thousands of people go to these annual meetings, but most of them are you know, associate provosts, assistant provosts, deans who are in charge of accreditation. Many of them send a huge team, especially if they're going to be going through you know reauthorization or reaccreditation in that in that particular year. But it's very unlikely the president will be there or get. You know, presidents get their hands dirty around accreditation. And I think in this case, it shows what can happen when a president takes great interest in this and actually gets their hands dirty in getting these uh, partnerships done. Yeah, I totally agree. So let me ask you one last question, because if I've been known as the person spelling the demise and merger and acquisition of small colleges, you've certainly been uh, the other part of this saying, hey, but there's a lot of opportunities for partnerships and consortia and so forth. So what's your take on uh, the partnership that she has with Make School specifically, but what it signals for the broader sector and the creativity we might see around that? I mean, what I think is creative about this is that it's a non-traditional provider, right? Most of the partnerships I've been talking about is 
you know, universities or colleges partnering with other colleges or universities that are accredited. This was obviously a case of a non-accredited uh, partnership. But in this case, there were specific needs on both sides because Dominican, as she talked about, needed a computer science you know, minor. And more students are, are uh, clamoring for that. They couldn't really put the resources to that. I don't think Mary talked about it in, in this episode, but she's told us before, you know, it would have cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to start that. Uh, and, you know, the competition you would have had with other colleges and universities would have been tough. So this is distinctive in, in that way. M meanwhile, Make School needed not only an accredited partner, but they needed the liberal arts skills that a place like Dominican can teach uh, their students, right? Because the Facebooks of the world and the Googles of the world uh, want that. Uh, on top of that, Dominican is a very diverse place, and we know that Silicon Valley is very white um, in that. And so they wanted that diversity of students that were going to be provided by uh, Dominican. So we everybody had a need here that was fulfilled. And that is the great example of a partnership that works. I don't think that colleges and universities should partner just a partner. Uh, be, but here we had a case where there were needs on both sides. They were complementary. Uh, they worked. They were close enough to each other. So this was something that you didn't have to work over the phone uh, or over long distance travel. The creditors were right there. This is a case I think that can be replicated elsewhere. One of the things that we didn't get to talk about is that I would love a university like this to create a playbook that you know, if I'm sitting in, you know, Arizona or I'm sitting in New York or Massachusetts or Michigan and I'm in a place like Dominican in terms of, you know, I don't have a minor in computer science or a major in computer science and I want to create a similar partnership, can I do that? In other words, can we replicate this by creating that playbook? Well, and I think we're starting to see some of that with adjacent with Davidson and, and, and so forth starting to work across lots of colleges and universities. But the other big thing I'll take away from that in terms of the plea for a playbook is that presidents probably up front ought to spend some time with their teams and say, what are our needs and be very specific about that? And what are the other organizations that we might partner with or work with? What are their needs and expertise? And how do we come together in a genuine conversation and genuine uh, mutually beneficial relationship? So we're not asking something of someone that we think flies in the face of what they stand for, but is actually helping them advance uh, forward as well. And, and so I think she did that uh, incredibly well. And it's a great way. Uh, it, that's the template for me that I take away from this. So uh, that does it for this episode. Uh, thanks again to Mary Marcy for joining us and especially thank you for listening. We love hearing from you. So please drop Jeff and me a line with ideas, comments, questions, or even complaints. We love those as well. Until next time, keep one eye on the present and the other on the future. Hey folks, Michael Horn here. Hope you enjoyed the latest episode of Future You. And just a reminder to please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like the podcast, rate us so that others can find us and uh, find out about the good conversations that we're having here. As always, thanks so much for listening.